0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi, and today I'm very pleased to be able to speak with historian Elizabeth Foster about her new book, Faith in Empire, Religion, Politics, and Colonial Rule in French Senegal, 1880 to 1940, published by Stanford University Press earlier this year.
1: Hi there, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm really pleased that, that you were able to speak with me today about the book. Great. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about it.
0: I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you interested in working on France and French history in particular.
1: Um, Sure. Uh, I am currently an assistant professor of history at Tufts University. Um, And I think uh, my path to French history uh started, I think, uh, as it did for many of my colleagues, uh, with early language instruction. I went to a school where uh, I had to start learning French um, in elementary school, and uh, I had wonderful teachers of French and of history at that school. I actually thanked them uh, in the beginning of mm-hmm. my uh, acknowledgments because I really think <laughs> they are the people who put me on this eventual, uh, eventual path. Um and when I was in college I had been debating between uh doing uh marine biology and history. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> quite <enough>. a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, um but I found my history classes so much more compelling than the intro science courses and I decided a little bit on a whim um to do European history uh, largely because I had the French and I could read it. Um, and, and then, of course, I was seduced by the amazing historiography, um, you know, Robert Darton, Lynn Hunt, Mona Uzouf, reading all of that as an undergraduate um, really cemented uh, my interest. But it, it was that early, mm-hmm. you know, exposure to French that, that, made, that, uh, that made that possible.
0: And what brought you to the subject of this book, in particular, the subject of uh, colonial rule in French Senegal in this period? You know, you cited these sort of early modern revolutionary French uh, texts, but, um, you know, now work on the late 19th and, and first half of the 20th century and on on Empire. Can you, can you say a little bit more about what got you interested in those issues?
1: Sure. Um, and this is, it's kind of a roundabout story. Um, when I was in college, I spent three summers working on and near the Blackfeet, um, reservation in North Central Montana. Um, I went as a student volunteer and then I worked in a laundry room on the, in Glacier Park, Um, and I saw firsthand, uh, you know, uh, uh, what I consider to be a, a colonial situation um, and uh, was really fascinated with, you know, how this uh, how the people in the reservation, how the Blackfeet people, you know, were living in the midst of this larger <laughs> entity and how they were coping with um you know, preserving uh, their identity and arguing about preserving their identity um, and including uh, their religious identity. Um, And this is something that comes out, obviously, in my work, although I, I don't know that it was conscious at the time, but I was very interested in, you know, evidence of religious syncretism I saw going to sweat lodges and hearing Hail Marys, for example. Um, And I kind of imported that interest back into my academic work as an undergraduate. Um, And I did a, my senior thesis was on um, the colonial exposition in Paris in 1931. So I, you know, I was really, I got interested in those issues in the American context, but then wanted to look at them, uh, in the French context. Uh, so that's, that's sort of how I, I got there. And then in terms of getting to, uh, (laughs) getting to Senegal, um, that was, it it was sort of a combination of, you know, as I think it is for many historians of sources and also, you know, there was interest, but then there's also sort of the source parameters. Um, And I had, uh, like many first books, this book grew out of a dissertation and I had gone to France in 2003 with the intention of writing something totally different. Um, I was interested in, I was still interested in France and colonialism in West Africa, but I was going to write something about commerce and uh I was in I was in Bordeaux actually and I was looking at municipal archives in Bordeaux and I wasn't really finding uh <laughs> what I was looking for and you know I wasn't I wasn't quite sure uh you know exactly where I was heading and I somehow found myself returning to the religious question and I think it had to do honestly that was the year that was the fall when the Stasi commission was looking into Um, The eventual what became the law on, uh, you know, religious symbols, ostentatious uh, religious symbols. Um, And that was sort of in the air, I guess. And I made a trip one day sort of out of the blue to a, a, a diocese library and started poking around and thought, wow, look at all this interesting missionary stuff. And then I called up a missionary archive And, uh, you know, they said, yeah, we have lots of stuff. And I took the train to Paris and and there was this wealth of stuff on uh, Senegal in particular. And um, it really interested me because during this period of the Third Republic, Senegal, as as is explained in the book, Senegal had this unique uh, situation where there were four. Coastal towns where African males had um, African males who were born there. Uh, had the right to vote, um, both for in local and regional elections, but then also to send a deputy to the French National Assembly. Um, and so I became very interested in, you know, what's the relationship between this particular colony and uh, the Metropolitan Republic? So sorry, that was a long answer.
0: <laughs> no, no, that that's, uh, it's really interesting. I One of my favorite parts of doing these interviews is finding out how people come to the to the work that they do, because it's not something you always get to find out outside of acknowledgements. I wonder if we could just, you know, moving to to talk about the book now and 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 you've sort of gotten us started, but if we could just back up for those of our listeners who, you know, don't know very much about the role of of France um well throughout the world in in empire but also particularly in Senegal, could you give us a sense of just a I mean, <laughs> this is kind of an impossible task, but a very brief story of France's involvement in Senegal? Um, getting up to this unique situation that you're talking about um, in the 19th century, you know, when did the French get there? What happened before your story begins uh, in the 1880s? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yes, um, yeah. This uh, I'll do a brief, <laughs> a brief thumbnail <laughs> sketch. Um, so, what's interesting about Senegal in particular is that it was both a a very old colony. Um, the French first. Uh, landed on the coast of, you know, what we now know as Senegal, uh, and established posts there in the 17th century. Um, and Saint Louis, uh, which was the capital of Senegal um, throughout the colonial, through most of the colonial period, Dakar became uh, more important and became a. a Regional colonial capital of the uh, French West African Federation, but Saint Louis was founded in the 17th century. And there were moments in the uh, 18th century when it fell into British hands and uh, so forth, but there is a constant, pretty much constant French presence in Senegal um for nearly uh, 300 years before uh, the period um or, excuse me um, 200 years before the period that uh i'm looking at um, and for much of that period it was really a coastal presence um, the french uh you know established uh, trading posts and towns Um, and there grew to be an important and very influential Métis, uh, population, um, which came about from unions between, uh, you know, often French, uh, French traders, uh, and African women known as the Signar. Um, and there's actually a lot of fascinating scholarship on these particular women who served often as sort of go-betweens between the French and, um, and, uh, people in the interior. Uh, so there's a long history of contact um, there's actually a long history of Catholicism uh, Catholicism was introduced um, uh, in you know with these French traders often um, and then the institutional church arrived uh, in in the coastal towns in the 18th century. Um, and a lot of the Métis, and this is important to the story, uh, a lot of the Métis population turned uh, became very devoutly uh, devoutly Catholic um, and then but the period that I'm looking at beginning in eighteen eighty is, is sort of a new departure um, in that it's the beginning of the you know the, the so-called scramble for Africa, of course, when much of the continent was divided up in the space of about two decades between the major European powers. And just before that, starting in the 1870s, the French had started to push inland uh, into Senegal and then further inland into, you know, what became the sort of giant uh, French West African Federation. So... It's kind of an old colony and a new colony uh, at the same time. There are people living in Senegal who have had, you know, contact with the French for centuries, for generations. And then there are people in the period that I'm looking at who encounter French rule um, for the very first time. Um, And one other thing I should say, just to mention the electoral institutions, um, in the 1870s, partially because of lobbying um, by the Métis and other French commercial interests, people people associated often with commercial houses based in Bordeaux and some in Marseille, was lobbying for uh, Africans and and the Métis population in those coastal communes, uh, those coastal towns, to vote um, because the commercial interests wanted – uh, you know, they wanted their their interests represented more strongly, and so they wanted people in the colony to make their voices heard um, on these commercial issues, both in the colony itself, but also in the French Chamber. Um, and so, they successfully managed to um, acquire those acquire those rights uh, for African uh, for African voters, and that, of course. Over the course of time, um, you know, those interests <laughs> were not necessarily were no longer necessarily represented. Um, and the African vote uh, began to uh, go in different directions and represent different things. I hope that was clear.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's really clear and it's really helpful just to sort of get us caught up to the place where the book uh, really gets going in the, in, the, in the 1880s. And so you've talked about this unique status of, of the Senegalese Population in terms of voting rights, or at least the male population in terms of voting rights, and you also say early on in the book you point out that the complexities of religion and politics in Senegal that they weren't just a matter of uh, in this period uh, of the 1880s and you know through in the book leading up to the 1940s this period of of the Third Republic that what's going on in Senegal isn't just a reflection of what's going on in the metropole or in France, but that there's a really unique. Uh, political and religious landscape on the ground in Senegal. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the complexities of that religious landscape. I mean, we'll get into it in the chapters, but just in general, you mentioned this Métis population that converts um, and and who else is, is on the ground in terms of religious affiliations
1: and and faith in empire. I guess to borrow your term, <laughs> right? Well, it is it is very complex. Um, and what's interesting is that in this period between 1880 and 1940, um, it it's an evolving landscape. And if you you know listen to the Catholic missionaries that I, I write about, you know they see it as a battleground uh, between mm-hmm. Islam uh, and Catholicism to capture uh, a still sizable uh, animist population um now islam had been in parts of senegal for centuries um but there's a new uh there's sort of a new impetus a new energy uh to, in the second half of the 19th century um, behind uh, expanding Sufi Muslim brotherhoods, um, and one of them, which is an indigenous uh, brotherhood, the Muradiyah, um the the uh, leader, founder, and leader of which is Amadou Bamba. Uh, you know, he he really he's most active during um, this era, sort of late nineteenth, early twentieth century, um, and he uh, he's very successful at uh, winning, uh, at winning Muslim converts, um, and, you know, gathering adherents to his, uh, to his brotherhood. Um, and still today in Senegal, I mean, his, uh, center, the mosque at Tuba, um, you know, the, the, the Moridia, the Mourid order is still very, um, mm. is still very powerful in Senegal today. And there are other, there are also the, the Tijaniya, um, they're also, um, very, uh, also growing in this period. Um, but there's something, you know, and scholars of, of, Of Islam in Senegal have pointed to how you know some of the dislocation brought about by colonial expansion um, and did help Bamba um, you know sort of gain (laughs) gain steam and and gather uh, adherence. There's a lot of social dislocation on the ground. Um, At the same time, um, like I said, there's a Catholic. Uh, an increased Catholic missionary effort that really gets going in the mid nineteenth century um, and uh you know they the Catholic missionaries um, who are nearly all french um, they're and the missionary um, the missionaries I write most about the spiritan missionaries who are given control of episcopal control of the region by the vatican i e the Spiritan is always the Bishop of Dakar and is always the chief executive of the, um, of the church in the region, even though there are members of other congregations such as nuns who are living and working there. It's the Spiritans who hold on to that executive seat and who also man all the parish priests, uh, all the, uh, official offices as, as parish priests. Um, but they're really anxious to convert uh, animists, you know, before the Muslims get to them. <laughs> is how they is how they port as how they portray it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and they see Africa as you know, in many of them see Africa as Europe. You know, back back in the day, back in Roman times. You know, it's our job to start the seeds of you know what will be a future Catholic civilization. Uh, in Africa. And it's important that we get our hands on, uh, you know, these animists um, and, and, Sort of secure them <laughs> before uh, before you know they convert to Islam, and so the missionaries are doing two things. Really, I mean, there are plenty of Catholics, established Catholics, who are living in those coastal towns, both French and Métis Catholics. Um, but then you know where where the missionaries serve more as in what we would consider sort of traditional roles as as priests in an urban setting, but then they're also out in the bush and particularly in. Areas where they think they have a good chance of winning uh, converts uh, from animism, and they don't. They do try to convert some Muslims, but they don't have a ton of resources, so they focus more on uh, animist populations.
0: Well, it is really complicated. And as somebody who knew nothing about any of this, really, except in very vague terms, um, before reading the book, I was really grateful to you for being able to you know, manage all of this complexity with so much clarity in the book. It's really quite extraordinary how you do that. Um, you present the book in the introduction, Liz, as a kind of corrective to historical studies that have come before. Um, and and much of this seems to be linked to your emphasis on things like the, these concepts, you know, the heterogeneity of colonial rule, uh, the significance of local agency, and what you refer to, and you have a few different ways of talking about this, but in at least one instance, you talk about this plethora of power brokers and that notion of a power broker um, seems very important throughout the book. And I wonder if you could um, talk about these forces at work on the ground in Senegal and tell us maybe a little bit more broadly about your approach along these lines and the types of prior historical work that the book is in
1: conversation with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And part of this, uh, part of my stance comes out of my own learning um, because I think I initially approached the project in the way that I ended up uh, critiquing, <laughs> in that, you know, I was very interested in the relationship between the French Metropolitan Republic, which had these, you know, supposed universal values of, um, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, and secularism in this period. Of course, right smack in the middle of my period is. When uh, the laws, uh, the law separating church and state is passed in 1905, there's a couple of laws before that, which maybe we'll get into the specifics of. But, you know, there's a real official push for secularism um, in the Third Republic. And it's sort of held up as laicite or secularism is one of the sort of um, underlying or foundational tenets, supposedly, of the French Third Republic. And so looking at... um, Looking at a colony in in this context, you know, my original thinking was, oh, well, here we have the Republic and it's all about secularism and how does that work in the colony? And I was thinking very much in terms of, you know, the metropole sort of projecting its values or its, um, you know, its ethos, its ideology onto this colonial canvas and um i think that's part of part of what the book ends up reacting to even though that's in some ways where i started because i think that there has been a tendency in some respects for uh people to assume that you know particular french values particular french uh kind of french civilization uh which often does include this secular uh secular ethos um that the French brought a particular ethos or civilization with them uh, to Africa and that their colonies were different as a result or they, they um, colonized differently as a result. And there's a, a great um, deal written about a supposed French Republican civilizing mission that, you know, it, it try it brought with it these particular values of liberty, equality, fraternity, secularism, etc., um, and while I don't think anyone believes, you know, this a hundred percent in that the French, you know, came to Africa spouting equality uh, completely, but that there's people have, I think, have accepted the idea that there's something unique about this, that there's something to this um, Republican civilizing mission um, and that it's, uh, you know, it does inform how the French do it and they do it differently than, say, the British, for example, Um and And I, I believed that too, but then I when I started looking at how complex things were on the ground, you know, it became some it just became hard to uh, say it, it, it just became hard to define <laughs> exactly how um, that... Supposed civilizing mission was working. In fact, I couldn't find as much evidence of it as I as I thought I might. I found that you know, republicanism and secularism—things that I had expected to find in the mouths of colonial administrators—it um, wasn't as prevalent uh, as as I had expected. And instead, what I was looking at, what I was finding, was that colonial rule as as it evolved was the product of all of these the interactions of all of these different power brokers some of whom are french some of whom are african but um you know and it's not just the administration the french administration the official you know french government that's a power broker it's contending with you know french missionaries are power brokers french traders are power brokers the metis com- and the commercial interests both french and metis are power brokers and of course all the you know african the sufi um the sufi brotherhoods um you know africans who hold power in particular locations mm-hmm. um you know before the french established rule and um you know there's a whole host of people and so what colonial rule ends up, what French colonial rule ends up looking like is this really complex negotiation between all these, different, uh, all these different brokers. And so it becomes much harder to talk about this very seamless transfer of French metropolitan ideas to the colonial setting.
0: It's, it's fascinating how you draw that. Uh, you come back to this point again and again in different ways throughout the six chapters, so maybe I can kind of move us to talking about those. And, you know, the chapters are organized um, in the book chronologically going from the 1880s uh, right up until uh, until 1940, and you sort of talk about those last years right before the, the French defeat um, in the conclusion to the book. Um, and the chapters are interesting in the sense that you're telling a story that's unfolding chronologically, but each chapter sort of engages with different um, themes and issues at the same time as as it comes back to some of these central concerns that we've just talked about. So um, in the first chapter, and you know I teach this uh, graduate class on on thesis writing and prospectus writing, and one of the things that I notice about the book is that you have these great hooks, right? I want to <laughs> I want to give these to my students and say, now that's a good hook. So in chapter one, and you do this a few times um, uh, in the book. Uh, You know, the hook is this scandal involving this nun alleged to have become pregnant in the colony in 1886. And so I wonder if you could just even tell us a sort of shorter version of that story of what unfolds and how you sort of use it to get into the themes and issues discussed in the chapter around uh, the interactions between religion and politics. In the 1880s uh, in Senegal.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. So um, <laughs> it's funny because when I first came across this uh, story, I didn't completely understand what was going on. Um, you know, you sort of need to get into the the sense of humor at the time, and I couldn't understand what the reference meant in the newspaper until I, and then and then I found archival, um, you know, the, the archival pieces around it, but. Yeah, there's a nun uh, who is accused of being pregnant uh, in a, a newspaper. It's actually at the time the only it's the first and only private newspaper that was published uh, in uh, in coastal Senegal. Um, before that, it was only the official the the official uh, colony paper, the journal Officiel, the colony. Um, and. It uh, accused this. There was a, a blurb that accused this nun uh, of being pregnant, which, of course, at that time uh, was a that was a really scandalous, <laughs> scandalous thing uh, thing to do. And it threw uh, it threw the all the the four communes, uh, the, which are the four the four towns that have the voting rights, uh, threw them into uh, a political and, and social uproar um, uh, in the context of ongoing uh, legislative elections. Um, and I use the incident to look at sort of where the Catholic Church is in Senegal at this at, at this moment. Um, it had been sort of more closely uh, allied with the uh colonial administration uh, prior to the early 1880s when a civilian administration came in and replaced a military one. Um, And it was very influential because it commanded... um, The Catholic Church was allied with one of the political parties, the Métis political parties that was uh, devoutly... Most of the members of it were devoutly Catholic. Um, And uh, so they're sort of implicated in um, electoral... Uh, you know, in the electoral arena. Um, and the, sh- the story shows two things. I mean, on the one hand, uh, what ends up happening is the nun who was not pregnant. Um, <laughs> her after much deliberation, her mother superior decides to sue the paper uh, for this slander. Um, and she's victorious. Uh, Although the nuns hesitate about this because they they think the more exposure this story gets, the worse off we are. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. need this in court. We don't really need this, um, you know, being bandied about in the public sphere for any longer than necessary. Um, And on the other hand, it shows that there's a new uh, you know, there's there's some new stuff stirring uh, politically in the communes. The paper that slandered the nun is uh, an attack by a rival Métis party that uses anti-clerical politics that are inspired to some degree by a metropolitan uh, anti-clerical rhetoric to try to attack uh, you know it, its political opponents in the co- in the communes um, and so and and attack the colonial administration. Um, so it's this opposition party, Uh, And it's I mean, the the missionaries, the Catholics um, are shocked by this because they you know, it it represents this new and 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 frightening uh, and frightening challenge, even though they went out in the end. It spells, you know, here an era, a new era is beginning and there are more players on the scene who are going to affect um, the political situation. Um, and what's interesting is, and maybe we'll talk about this as we get further into the book, the Métis, or Métis opposition group, which attacks the nun, they aren't afraid to, at the same time, you know, later on when they see that maybe, you know, anti-clericalism isn't the best approach, they're perfectly willing to embrace Catholicism and the Catholic mission, especially as they see the Catholic mission moving into opposition against the colonial administration. So it's going back to the power brokers idea where uh-huh. it's the shifting landscape <laughs> and it keeps shifting so quickly in this period. Um, you know, in 30, 35 years later, the Métis are almost politically irrelevant anyway. Um, once the African, the black African population actually, um, Wins an election outright for itself, Um, so some of this early bickering (laughs) starts to look like, oh, you know, you you guys don't see the writing on the wall in terms of which power, which power brokers are really going to sort of last here, who are are going to emerge um, as as most important. Um, But this is a way of my introducing this very complicated um, landscape of shifting power brokers and interests.
0: Um, And the next chapter in in the book, Liz, you look at the 1890s and you use, so the first is this allegedly pregnant nun. And then the the second chapter, you use this murder and investigation and trial um, to talk about this complex interplay between French administrators Missionaries and these different African groups, and you also move from a discussion of the communes to um, sort of the French incursions in land, and 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 I wonder if you could talk about that and what some of the issues are and who are the different players involved uh, as as you move into the 1890s and as you look at a uh, at a different sort of geographic region. Mm-hmm.
1: This is actually my favorite chapter to write um, and and to research. It was just one of those. Situations where I'm sure you know historians will know what I mean, where just archival sources from three different places, you know, just coalesced into this amazing picture uh, that Mm. I would never have seen (laughs) otherwise. I mean, the first time when I looked at the sources, um, which was when I was doing my dissertation, I only had a couple pages on this trial, this murder trial, um, because I had found some sources in Dakar and then I had found some in a missionary archive, but it wasn't until I subsequently went to Aix-en-Provence and found the court records that it really came into focus. And it was that I'll, I'll never forget the finding of the court records in Aix-en-Provence. I was jumping up and down, um, <laughs> at my desk. But so this looks at, um, an area which, at the time, now this is still relatively close to the coast, but at the time this was a period. This was an area where the French were expanding, and what's interesting here is the French colonial administration was really expanding into an area where there were already missionaries on the ground. So there were French missionaries there, um, you know, but then you have this uh, administration moving in and trying to assert its hegemony in the region. Um, and what ended up happening is there were two uh, African groups in the region, the predominantly uh, Muslim Wolof um, and the predominantly uh, animist Serer, um, who had long been uh, in conflict. Their conflict had preceded um had preceded the entry of missionaries and uh, administrators into the region, um, and the Serer had long sort of resisted being incorporated into uh, the neighboring Walluf kingdoms, um, and had resisted also converting to Islam uh, largely because of their rejection of, you know, the wolof as political overlords. And so from the missionary perspective, I mean, one of the reasons the missionaries are there is because they see the serer as, oh, great, here are some animists who don't like Muslims. You know, this is a perfect <laughs> opportunity for us, right? You know, right. And we can, we, can, we, can, we can go in here and we can find some people who are receptive. And we can also, you know, they really actually talked in terms of creating physical barriers to Islam. So they were hoping that, you know, they could like literally establish a cordon of people of uh, Catholic people, Catholic Serer that would sort of keep Islam from spreading, you know, further mm. further south um, in Senegal. So you have antagonism between Wolof and Serer. You have missionaries who want to convert the Serer, um, who are in place and on the ground in greater numbers than the French administration. And then you have the French administration moving in, and because of course the French administration is um, under-equipped and underfunded, um, they have to rely a lot on African intermediaries. And they choose to rely on the Wolof in this region. Um, This is a region south of Dakar, um, south and east of Dakar. And so they appoint as their agents uh, Muslim Wolof, many of whom, um, you know, I've seen written sources by these people. I mean, many of whom are literate, some of whom had attended uh, French school. Uh, or had been aristocrats in these uh, Wolof kingdoms. Um, So highly educated in some cases. Um, You know, the French saw them as more reliable, the French administrators. The French administrators saw the Serer as, you know, unruly, brutal, savage, peasant, villager types. And they saw these Wolof aristocrats as more, you know, civilized, I guess would be the word. So you have a situation where the missionaries are trying to... um, you know, convert the Serer, but then the French administration comes along and appoints all these Muslim Wallachs as the chiefs, uh, you know, over these Serer populations, which anger the Serer and, of course, anger the missionaries because the missionaries are worried, oh, well, if they give them, you know, Muslim chiefs, then they're all going to convert to Islam eventually, Mm -hmm. and our work is all in vain. Um, And so there's this fierce competition that develops where, the missionaries constantly, uh, you know, sort of undermine the administration in a whole bunch of different ways um, and the Wolof chiefs. Um, and one of the cases is this trial where a Serrer is accused of uh, murdering a Wolof agent of the administration. And the court, the case actually goes to court uh, in the colony's capital in Saint-Louis And the chief witness is, in fact, a missionary who testifies that, well, of course he killed this guy in self-defense because the administration has this terrible policy of appointing Wolof chiefs over these, you know, poor, victimized Serrer, and this is the outcome. And so the the man, the Serrer, is acquitted of the murder, um, which is a major (laughs) uproar, causes a major uproar in the French uh, administration. Um, But it's really interesting because it's a, it, it's never quite clear exactly who's pulling the strings in a lot of these, um, a lot of these interactions. And the Sarer, um, uh are doing an excellent job of kind of motivating these French missionaries to go to bat for them against their Wallaf chiefs and to you know complain to the governor. Uh, and you know they they do a lot. There's a lot of manipulating. And of course, there's some you know manipulating on the other. And as well, the missionaries, you know, <laughs> they want to justify what they're doing. So they're, you know, they, they also, um, uh, you know, embroil themselves in this conflict in, manip- in manipulative ways. But it's a really fascinating example of how, you know, these, again, you've got these separate power brokers who are contending uh, for influence and, you know, trying to get their particular Uh, Trying to get things um, as they would as they would like to have it, Uh, and it it's it it's 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 sort of how colonial rule, you know, how it works in a very very local level as a product of these um, of these contestations.
0: Well, I I mean I'm not sure I have a favorite chapter, but maybe it's mine as well. I, I think the other thing that about this sort of in a general sense in terms of what you're getting at in the book is that. This is a chapter that really uh, well, on the one hand, you you know this earlier conflict that you're, this long-standing conflict that you're talking about between the Wolof and the Serer, you sort of show how that gets um, mapped onto the um, conflict between administrators and missionaries, that in fact, the, this longer history is there, and then the conflict between administrators um, and missionaries uh I'm, I'm not sure if i'm I'm trying to think of the right word that it sort of uh reinforces that and 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 that in fact Africans themselves are agents in all of this um and I wondered if you could say something about you know how in this great convergence of sources you got at or tried to get at um these issues of african agency and and at one point you talk about how you know the priests and the administrators are the lar- are the loudest voices in the in the archives but but you did get at some of this. Um, issue of of African agency and and voices in in this history. Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Um, And what's interesting is I actually, I don't know that I can keep doing this now that the book is out, but it's actually such a fascinating exercise for students that I have actually translated a bunch of the sources and I do an exercise. I teach a class on France and Africa and I actually give the students the sources and I say to them, okay, you know, write me, uh, I give them snippets, obviously not everything that was in the chapter, but I say, you know, t- tell me who's in charge here, you know, write me an explanation of what's going on and who's pulling the strings, you know, and it's funny because at the end of the day, you have these passionate advocates for the wall of chiefs and these passionate advocates for the Sarah villagers. And, uh, right. But yeah, it's I'm was lucky in the sense that some of the Wolof there actually are uh in the archives in, in Senegal there actually are um uh documents from some of these Wolof uh Wall-off chiefs, um, you know, writing to the French administration saying, you know, if this missionary is in charge here, then fine, you know, I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> what am I supposed to do about this missionary who's telling the Sarah villages they don't have to pay me their taxes kind of thing? Um, so there actually are some concrete sources from Africans, which is pretty rare, um, right. you know. Uh, now, of course, the Sarah there's very there's there's nothing in the documentary record that comes directly from a Sarah um, source, except, you know, counting the, the trial, what we have of the trial records, what's transcribed in the trial records. Um, but, you know, it's, it's possible to read through um, the French sources and what's particularly great about this case, like I said, is that there's two French You know, I've got two French accounts to look at in many of these cases. So, you know, there's the administrative account, which, of course, has its own biases and flaws. Um, And then there's a missionary account, which has its own uh, problems as well. But held next to each other when they're talking about the same incidents, for example, in a Sarah village, you know, then you can really start to, uh, you know, you could start to hear those Sarah voices and you're not, you know, that's one thing that I found so great about doing the research for the book in general is that the missionary sources as, you know, as flawed as they are, they're so good at throwing the French administrative sources into relief. And so much colonial history is sort of straight out of these, you know, colonial uh, administrative archives. Um, and there's often not a sort of, you know, it's hard to get a different perspective. Um, but that's one thing that really helped in this case is you have these two different French sources and that can actually help clarify the African picture.
0: Well, and it's, I mean, and one of the larger, I guess, aims of the book that, that you talk about again in the conclusion and that really runs throughout the chapters is this notion that, you know, we have a tendency or people have had a tendency to think that missionaries served as, um, you know, I think you use that term, handmaidens of empire. Um, and that, in fact, when we look at these different sources and look at the interests and competing visions, as you say, of Africans and of the civilizing mission and ideas about assimilation and these other things that, in fact, not only that you read, can read these sources uh, against one another and also show that, in fact, missionaries weren't just working for the administration, uh, or working in service of the administration, that they had their own interests, and that they were on the the other side or another side of things, um, either defending their own interests, and in some cases, as in the case of this trial, um, you know, speaking up in defense of of, uh, of an African who had who had killed uh, uh, someone who was essentially a French agent. Mm. Um, so, so that's really fascinating the way you 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 show that in these different cases in the in the book. You mentioned earlier, Liz, that. Uh, part of the book, and you you get into this in chapter three, that you look at the ways in which legislation, that Third Republic legislation around um, laicite and secularism um, in the early part of the 20th century, in the wake of the Dreyfus affair of the end of the 19th century, that, that, that legislation, well, I guess it's more of a question than a statement that, that the, that there is a debate about how that legislation should be applied in the colonial context. And, um, the way in which it should be exported, if at all, to to the empire as a whole and to Senegal in particular. So I wonder if we could talk now about, you know, how that all works out in the early 20th century and how these different pieces of legislation, maybe you can even just tell us what they were, um, and and how the transmission or not of this these new policies that apply in, in the metropolitan context uh, how that plays out in the in the colonial context in Senegal? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean the middle chapters of the book are uh, both the the chapter you're mentioning, which deals with the legislation, and the subsequent chapter on the First World War. I mean this this these are the two periods when I feel as though the the metropolitan context does uh, sort of impinge. Uh, more (laughs) on the colonial uh, scene, although not necessarily in the ways that uh, one would expect, um, and not entirely. Um, You know, there's a moment, uh, I think I write when the, you know, the channels uh, for this legislation are sort of open, um, that, you know, anti-clericalism is, there's a moment when it looks like anti-clericalism is going to Metropolitan anti-clericalism is going to come ashore uh, in Senegal. But then there's a whole host of factors that end up mitigating that. Um, some of that is activism on the ground by people in the colony, a whole host of different measures, um, you know, sort of trying to blunt things like the laicization of schools and hospitals. But then also on the part of the, um, High-ranking colonial uh, officials who start to become, you know, skeptical of the idea of um, implementing metropolitan law for a variety of reasons, um, and so uh, in this case, we're talking about the the triumvirate of the so-called anti-clerical laws, which, as you said, came into force uh, in the wake of the Dreyfus Affair in France, um, and we're really, you know, when they were uh, when they were conceived of and promulgated were really aimed at the Catholic church. Of course, these laws, and maybe we'll talk about this later, these laws um, have come up again and the law of 1905 in particular, separating church and state have come up again um, in recent years in the context of the place of Islam in France Um, But they were aimed at Catholics and at Catholic congregations in particular. A congregation is a word we might use for a Catholic order, uh, like the Dominicans or, in my Mm -hmm. case, the Spiritans, Um, some of whom had been very, very vocal uh, during the Dreyfus Affair, very uh, anti-Dreyfusard, very critical of the Republic. Um, And these laws were aimed at... Uh, punishing, at <laughs> uh, least to some degree, at, at punishing uh, these congregations, and so there's a 1901 law on associations, which is a government attempt to sort of it, it, to uh, establish more control over uh, organizations such as uh, congregations. Uh, there's a 1904 uh, law on uh, on um, congregations, uh, that regulates congregations. And then there's the famous one on, uh, in 1905 on, um, separate, officially separating church and state and ending all, uh, state funding for, uh, Catholic, uh, schools, uh, or, you know, uh, Catholic enterprises of any, of any kind. Um, and there's a big debate about, whether this should be applied in the empire. Um, and there's a commission that's set up in France, the called the Disla uh, commission, which starts meeting actually before they pass the third law, the separation of church and state. They start looking at the first two laws, uh, laws of 1901 and 1904 to figure out, you know, does it make sense to apply this, um, to apply this legislation in the colonies? And if so, are we just applying it to Catholics or are we going to apply it to all the different religions that are in the colonies? And if we're going to do that, you know, <laughs> how do we do that, et cetera. And it turns, it it becomes this fascinating discussion. In the case of Senegal, it becomes a fascinating discussion, a sort of three-way discussion between the governor of Senegal, the governor general of French West Africa, who is the executive that oversees the entire French West Af- African Federation, of which Senegal is only one colony. Uh, there are eight colonies in the federation, and then uh, and then this commission in Paris, these high ranking individuals in Paris who are sort of, you know, charged with setting uh, policy from the top down, um, and. They raised some really fascinating questions, which, you know, when I was reading this stuff from from this era made me think, I mean, some of the questions they're raising are things you're hearing in the French media today, which, you know, are Muslim, is Islam comparable, for example, to Catholicism in terms of, right. you know, can it be treated the same way before the law? Can a Muslim be a Frenchman? Uh, you know, there's all sorts of, now these themes run throughout Throughout the book, but you have you're having these explicit discussions, um, you know, is it, it, it did remind me of some of the, the stuff I was hearing, you know, in France in the early 2000s is a headscarf, the same thing as a cross, <laughs> you yeah. know, and can we compare this? And does it make sense to try to apply this legislation, um, which, you know, was was clearly written with Catholics in mind? Um, should we, uh, with Catholic congregations in mind, should we apply it, um, to these other religions? And you know, I, I, I it's a very intricate discussion. I don't want to, you know, bore everyone with the details, but <laughs> the, it, it, it goes back and forth. Um, and it's funny because it doesn't really necessarily make sense. In the beginning, the executives in, uh, you know, in, in the colony, are sort of taking an should oh, sure, you know, apply the law or whatever, even though there are are actually laws on the books in in the colony um, that give the governor really wide-ranging powers over religious organizations that would actually in some ways be curtailed by this legislation. Um, But they seem not to really be aware of that. This is one of the interesting things, too. You start to see how... How this colonial, you know, some of this colonial um, structure of, of power is, you know, is sometimes manned by people that don't even understand exactly what their uh, powers are. Um, and but by the end of the discussion, um, which it concludes uh, a couple years after the separation of church and state in 1907, The executives on the ground, the same people who were talking about this, you know, a few years earlier, are passionately arguing that, no, we shouldn't have legislation. We need to keep our, you know, keep our hands free to do what we need to do on the ground. And we don't want, you know, to be encumbered by uh, metropolitan law and furthermore, Muslims, you know it there's this sort of heightened fear, I think of what applying this to Muslims might mean, and maybe this will and you know this will result in uh unrest or terrorism or you know so forth and so on so it's a very bizarre discussion, <laughs> but I think it kind of reflects um it reflects to a certain degree you know how unclear uh everybody was on you know what is exactly their relationship to the people in the empire and there really there is no clear ideology that that holds sway again going back to the point about the civilizing mission and the republic's re- republican secularism you end up with some application in some colonies you know in in some respects you end up in algeria with application except for exemption for uh, Muslim clerics who have supported the regime that an exception that's renewed over and over and over again until the 1940s. You end up with this crazy patchwork where, you know, this supposed unshakable, uh, you know, ideal of laicite is, is completely compromised and changed and altered. Um, so it kind of goes to my point again, of power brokers and exceptions and cobbling together a kind of crazy quilt of of imperial governance.
0: it's It's really fascinating, and and given the, the sort of certainty with which some of these laws are at least attempted uh, in, in their applications more recently, it's um, it's really interesting to look at this historical case where uh, things were so complicated, and in fact, there was so much compromise necessitated by, uh, by things on the ground. So, so I, f- I find those connections really fascinating, and I'm, I'm glad you brought them up. Um, you move on in the, in the later chapters in the book to talking about the impact of the First World War um, and then the building of Dakar's uh, colonial cathedral of the Souvenir Africain. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know, how the war, um, as another kind of external force uh, with demands coming from the metropole uh, runs through the colony and the impact that it has on these interactions between religion, politics, and colonial authority.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah. The war uh, is, um, well, it's significant on, on many levels Um, and Senegal really um, the toll um, on the people of uh, Senegal and particularly um, African, I'm, I'm saying, the Afri- I mean, the African population in particular is extremely is extremely high um, in terms of casualty casualty rates. As you know, as many people, it's become very visible in the last few years. Um, you know, tens of thousands of West Africans were. Uh, <laughs> the French used the word recruited, <laughs> it, right. conscripted. I mean, I, I when I was writing this, I you know, I kept you know, I kept trying to think of how to, how to convey recruited in the sense that I meant, which in many cases meant, you know, recruited was a, was a very, it was a forceful thing. It was a conscription, um, you know, in some cases almost an enslavement. Um, but, uh, Africans, you know, went in large numbers, uh, to, to fight, uh, in the metropole, um, and their casualty, casualty rates, uh, were, were very high. Um, on the other hand, many of them that came back, um, you know, they had seen France, and there's people, met people who've written about this um, very, very eloquently. Uh, you know, it. War veterans who came back had, you know, new aspirations. They'd seen Europe. <laughs> They'd fought on, you know, equal footing uh, against Europeans. They uh, and they wanted particular, um, you know, games. They wanted particular concrete. Um, uh, gains as a result of that, um, so uh, that's one of the, you know that's one of the backstories. Um, I really focus on uh, the missionary stance um, in this period because it's very interesting. I mean, the missionaries sort of make a. a career in some ways out of, you know, defending Africans against the, what they see as a rapacious uh, administration. Um, But this is one case where they sort of shut their mouths, even though privately they are, you know, writing to each other about how horrified they are by the policies of the um, administration that's you know coming around and and taking Africans off to to war um, and the ways in which the re- quote unquote recruitment is handled where you know uh, African chiefs will single out the people they don't like in their community and take them in chains to the um, uh, take them in chains to the the, the French army post um, but the calculation on the part of missionaries is that. This is our chance to show that, you know, we are patriots. I mean, one of the things that's running through their arguments through this whole period um, is that they are better French patriots and they are better sort of French civilizers than the administration, that they are the sort of the true French civilizers in Africa. They are the ones who are teaching Africans, you know, the, the values of Europe. Um, you know, in their in their case, of course, it's, this is in this is linked indissolubly to Catholicism. And they've been arguing, even in the chapter where I described with the murderer case, even though they benefit from the fact that the administration policies are oppressing the Serer population. And so the missionaries kind of get they get closer to the Serer by acting as their defenders they're still arguing that it would just be better if the missionary, if the administration would just support Catholic proselytization wholesale and help them convert. Okay. Um, and so this is for them a big chance to show that we're patriots and we care about France and. OK, we're not we're, we're not going to you know, we're not going to protest, even though we're completely horrified about how how things are unfolding. Um, and not only that, we're really going to celebrate, uh, you know, our patriotism through the launching of this um, this cathedral project, which is becomes a, I have a chapter on the war and then a chapter on the cathedral project. The cathedral project starts uh, in uh, a few years before the war, um, and the bishop at the time, the, the missionary bishop, conceives of it as a patriotic monument to all the French uh, soldiers, administrators, missionaries, uh, traders, etc. who died for France and Africa, um, you know, who gave their lives so that France could could colonize Africa. Um, and then the First World War interrupts the project, and it then becomes an even bigger memorial for all the Africans who then died for France. So it sort of it becomes more emblematic of this reciprocal relationship. But it's a very um, aggressively, aggressively patriotic um, uh, gesture by this Catholic mission to really try to show this administration, which has never fully, you know, embraced uh, the Catholic, uh, the Catholic mission. That they are real French patriots and that they know best, (laughs) basically, you know, how to deal with uh, colonization, how to colonize, how to relate to Africans. It's kind of, you know, going back to the handmaiden point, it's like they want to be handmaidens, um, but they but they never the administrators won't let them. (laughs) Right. And it's but it's not. But the key one of the key points is it's not because the administrators are you know, ideologues, uh, secular, you know, secularizing ideologues, it's, there's a whole bunch of different reasons, but, you know, they see mm-hmm. the missionaries as, you know, in this case of the Sarah, they're meddling, they're contesting administrative authority over Africans. They're interfering with, tax collection, they're testifying in court on behalf of Africans. They're, you know, um, the reasons change over time. By the end of the book, uh, one of the chief complaints in the interwar period by administrators is that, you know, missionaries are giving Africans aspirations that are dangerous to um, the to the colonial order. They're, you know, teaching Africans, well, if they convert, they're just like, uh, you know, they're just like Frenchmen. And, you know, the missionaries are actually arguing that they should be judged uh, according to Christian law or according to uh, French law, um, you know, which administrators see as this is problematic. We don't want a bunch of African Catholics thinking that they're suddenly, you know, entitled to special rights and and privileges. So there's a whole host of different reasons, but the administration just never quite buys this missionary patriotic (laughs) push um which really you know the which really centers around um the the first the first world war
0: so you talk about um those you talk about the conversion of uh, africans to Catholicism in the, in the last chapter of the book and it, uh the, you you've raised the issue already of this sort of theme of you know how to handle um converts how the french administration thinks about assimilation and about africans differently than missionaries And I wonder if you could just tell us even just some information, like how many converts to Catholicism were there? How successful were missionaries in the Senegalese context? And, um, you know, how does this all come back to this point about the heterogeneity of
1: of French rule? Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) the short answer to your question in terms of was it successful is not very. (laughs) <laughs> right uh, <laughs> um and i mean there are myriad there are myriad reasons for that um and one and some of them have to do with uh missionaries own flaws um and their own now i, I argue in the book that they hew more more uh, closely to their to an ideological vision than do uh, administrators, um, you know, and in you know their their Catholic vision uh, of a civilizing mission. Um, but there's also real you know limitations to that, and and one of the ways in which that becomes evident is that they're terrible at training, um, African priests to, uh, you know, to, to take over, um, in African communities. I mean, these French priests, men, most of them want to keep authority over Africans. There's also, you know, this is also a power relationship and it's one thing to convert people. It's another to sort of hand them the keys to the church. And this is a problem throughout, um, Uh, this is a a phenomenon throughout uh, uh, Africa and and something that the Vatican and in the British Protestant churches also constantly hammering home to their missionaries, which is, you know, the whole point of this is to create an African church, but you know, a lot of these missionaries are in fact racist and don't think that these Africans can, can be in charge. Um, And so that does, you know, that, that's one of the big, um, one of the reasons that uh, they 're not as successful as they as they could be there 's a host of a host of other ones um, we 're talking in terms of conversions. You know, in the period of course, this is very. <laughs> these numbers are so hard to pin down, and sure. they're coming out of Catholic sources, where you know you need to you need to be skeptical. But we're talking in the tens of thousands over this period. We're not. You know, there are other colonies. It's interesting. There are other areas in French-controlled Africa where um, where missionaries do much better, and in, even the same the same uh, groups of missionaries. Um, Islam is also i mean it's a huge factor in the fact that they're competing um, with uh, well established um, you know muslim uh and expansionist muslim uh competitors uh has a lot to do with it as well um, but what's interesting is that, you know, they do, the two populations that I end up, two African populations I end up talking about a lot, the um, Serer, whom I mentioned before, and the Jola, which are an animist population in the, they were an animist population in the Casamance. They do, you know, these are the two areas in Senegal today where Catholicism is still very important. And Leopold Senghor, who was the first president mm-hmm. of independent Senegal, is a Catholic Sarah, um, and we went to mission school. I saw his, you know, equivalent of his sixth grade, you know, report card (laughs) in the archives. And it's, and when he went on to, of course, and he was brilliant, I mean, he went on to distinguish himself in high school, uh, in, uh, before going to France for his higher education. And the missionaries were so proud of him, you know, when he was, he went off to high school, not a Catholic high school, but went off to high school uh, in Dakar, I believe. And they were so proud because he was so, you know, they said, this reflects well on us, you know, <laughs> cause we're the ones who, you know, who taught him, uh, in the beginning. So even though Catholics are a tiny minority in, in Senegal today, they're still, you know, they're still very influential. Um, and because of the mix of ethnic groups in Senegal, um, you know, I mean, the Muslim Wolof are, you know, are dominant uh, demographically, but, you know, the Catholic and the Catholic uh, Jola and Sarah populations are also very important. Um, and, you know, Senegal still prides itself today on being a stable, uh, you know, cosmopolitan kind of place where, you know, people of different faiths, different ethnicities can. Uh, you know, can coexist in a democracy. I mean, of course, there are some threats to that in the last year or two, um, which seem to have been surmounted. Mm-hmm. But um, it's an interesting part of the identity of the modern, you know, of the country as it is today, of the independent country.
0: Do you think the, the study uh, that you've offered us here, you, you mentioned that, you know, you got interested in this, in these some of these issues um, during the period of the Stasi Commission. And I just wonder if, Uh, you have any thoughts on how looking at the intricacies of this religious landscape, thinking about empire, thinking about religion, thinking about these questions of assimilation and uh, civilization, civilization, that are there lessons from this uh, story that you tell from the late 19th to the mid 20th century for some of these issues? I know this is a huge question, but um, if you want to say anything about issues of secularism in France, uh, currently, um, and the legacies of empire, like, do you see connections between the work you've done here and, and the ways that some of those questions continue to resonate in France today?
1: Oh, I definitely, I definitely do. I don't know if I want to pronounce on any lessons. Um, (laughs) I, I mean, so I think, I think there are three ways in which this study, um, three ways that I, you know, that really strike me and in, um, in ways in which this study connects to, you know, more contemporary issues. I mean, the first is indeed this question of religious politics uh, in France today, um, you know, which is directly a legacy of empire because, um, you know, many of the pop- immigrant populations, um, Muslim population, in particular, you know, is an immigrant or former immigrant population from, uh, the former, the former colonies. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I I don't have, I don't have any words of wisdom on where this should head, but I mean, one of the things that I learned, and especially in that chapter about the metropolitan legislation is that You know, and other scholars have said this more eloquently than I have. But, you know, laicite, again, which has often been treated as the sort of immutable, you know, ever, um, ever unchanging principle of French republicanism is something that, you know, was created in a particular historical context, you know, negotiated by particular interests, um, and that continues to be the case. And so sometimes it's invoked today, um, you know, in, in relation, for example, to head scars or to the niqab or, you know, whatever the, the issue du jour is, which, which usually is a, you know, pertains to um, Muslim uh, observance in France. You know, people who invoke it on both sides of the issue, I think, as this kind of immutable principle that stands outside of history. I mean, that's just not the case, um, both, right. both when it's created. And then, you know, what was interesting for me is seeing these first tentative uh, discussions about how does how does laicite relate to Islam in, you know, in this imperial context and getting this huge range of answers. And, you know, it'd be fascinating for someone to actually do a study on the whole of, you know, I was really focusing on the Senegalese case and the French West African case. But, you know, if you check the empire as a whole and look at, you know, how the, the Disler commission was thinking about, you know, this secularizing legislation, um, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I sort of all the different jockeying and <laughs> exceptions and negotiations. So, I mean, that's one thing I think is to is to keep in mind that that secularism is something that, you know, the fact that it's considered to be this immutable principle is itself a historical <laughs> itself has, right. you know, has its own history, I guess. Um, so that's one thing, although I don't have any specific, uh, recommendations on on what, what (laughs) I will put that pressure Um, on you. (laughs) Um, so that's the first, you know, that's the first area. And, you know, I was just so struck by some of the things that I found in my sources that I felt like I could have torn from the pages of, French, you know, newspapers today, you know, you've got the Catholic bishop in 1892 in in Dakar shouting that we're never going to make a Frenchman out of a Muslim, you know, I mean, when are you going to realize that this just isn't an incompat, this is just an incompatible, you know, incompatible um, thing. Um, So, you know, and it was just striking to see that. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) This is Senegal in 1892, as opposed to France in 2003. But um, you know, there's, there's definitely some, uh, there's definitely some interesting connections there. Um, the second, you know, the second thing that I think, um, it, it, it relates to in terms of the contemporary scene is the ongoing, uh, often fraught relationship between France and Africa, which is something I, I, I touch on in my teaching, um, uh, to a certain degree, Um, but you know, it's something I think in America we don't necessarily have as much, um, perspective or visibility on. Um, the areas of Africa that are in the former French Empire, um, are not necessarily on our radar screen, I think, as much. They are now actually, I mean, of course, with this recent, um, violence in Mali, um, and then the French, uh, the French. Uh, military action there that has suddenly, you know, as (laughs) suddenly when there seems to be a terror threat, you know, the Americans, uh, the American government, Americans are become focused on the region. Um, But the history of of France in this part of Africa post-independence, you know, there is a continuing history there. Um, There are many ways in which uh, the relationships are still very uh, important, both between governments um, and, you know, uh, in the in the case of this book, uh, in the, in between churches, and I'll get to that in a second. You know, between Catholicism, you know, in Africa and in in Europe, um, and I think I yeah I just think we don't as Americans we don't always pay attention to that. It's much more visible in France, and I've traveled in extensively in this part of the world, it is certainly very visible on the ground and it it works through different channels. Now, um, you know, there's trade, there's development, but there's also a lot of political wrangling around say, you know, immigration policy. Um, you know, and I, I was actually in Senegal in, um, when president Bush visited, uh, in 2003, um, which is actually very bizarre. I mean, suddenly all the beggars were gone from the streets of Dakar. I don't know where, you know, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was crazy, but... I was talking with some people who said, well, you know, it, it was, it was one person was arguing, well, this is good. You know, America America's going to pay attention to Senegal, and maybe this is a way to kind of pry ourselves loose from the French. And then the, you know, other side of the argument was, you know what, the French know who we are and where we are. And as much as, <laughs> you know, as much as much as frustrating as the relationship with France can be, we know that we're going to get aid You know, from the we're going to get, you know, monetary aid, we're going to get assistance, you know, that if we have to place a bet on the United States or on France going forward as a global partner, France is the safer bet, even though, yes, there's the, you know, the continuing, you know, imbalance of power and frustration about colonial the colonial past um the sense is that it's a safer bet the americans aren't going to care who we are you know <laughs> a couple know. years down the road so i mean that's something um i, I that's that's something too i mean that i that I, I i you know think about in terms of what are some of the connections to the present day and the last thing is and this is something i'm i'm actually working on now is you know the the fate of the church um, in Africa uh, and the fact that now, of course in Senegal, like I said, <laughs> the fate is not, uh, the fate of the church is not as as good as it is elsewhere. But what struck me, you know, I've spent a lot of time in these obscure Catholic archives uh, in, in Rome and in France and various other places. And so many of the clergy in Europe now are actually African. There's been this huge sort of flow You know, there was a huge flow of Europeans and particularly the French. The French were the, you know, missionaries par excellence in the late 19th, early 20th century. Huge flow of French uh, missionaries out into the world, into the French Empire and elsewhere and now there's this huge flow back of uh, Africans into European churches, both into missionary congregations. All of these missionary congregations that I describe, I'm, they're now at least, you know, their they're, they're population taken by country of origin. Um, they have hundreds of African uh, members now. Um, and in some cases, they're almost majority um, African members because they can't recruit uh, priests in France anymore. Um, and, uh, and then even parish, you know, parish priests, I was in Sancerre last summer, um, and met, you know, the, the local, this actually Protestant, local Protestant minister was Congolese. Um, but, you know, this is increasingly, it's interesting, like for all of the, um, difficulty, you know, the church encountered in Africa, in some ways, this is the most enduring, one of the most important enduring connections, um. Of the colonial era, um, and one of the ways in which there's still, you know, a lot of tr- um, uh, exchange and um, you know travel between Europe and Africa is through uh, is through these religious uh, institutions. And you saw, of course, with the Pope, the election of the new Pope this year. I mean, there was all this mm-hmm. excitement that it was a Pope from. Third World. Now there was, of course, there had been rumors that it was going to be an African, um, and I know lots of people who were disappointed when it wasn't. But still, the fact that the Catholic Church went outside of Europe, you know, and 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 picked somebody that was, you know, quote unquote, you know, from the from the Third World. I mean, it showed, you know, it showed the direction that the Church is moving, and it's, you know, it's becoming less of a European institution. Um, so I think that's interesting, too. It's a pretty remarkable transformation when you had, even as recently as the 40s and 50s, just handfuls of African priests. Um, and now, you know, uh, there's this now these African priests are sort of, you know, they're being called to Europe to help because you can't find any um, any Europeans who want to be priests anymore, at least in, in Western Europe.
0: It's really fascinating, those uh, legacies of the of the book. Um, well, Liz, we've taken up a lot of your time, and, um, and I'm glad that you got to this uh, issue of, you know, what you're working on now, because um, that's usually a question that I ask towards the end. But um, I guess this is just the time for me to say thank you so much for writing the book and for agreeing to talk with me about it today. And uh, uh, I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing more about the project and, and how it all came together.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really I appreciated um, having the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad somebody. I'm glad somebody cares.
0: <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, and and just in terms of those connections that you've made, uh, I think our listeners will find that it's you know not just a book about uh, the 19th and, and and first part of the 20th century, um, and not just one about Senegal, but that has broader implications, and that's um, and that's really fascinating. Thanks so much, Liz. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in French studies. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you'll join us again next time.